the user gets satisfaction, right? The user gets a uh, uh, problem solved, right? The user gets relief. What the volunteer gets? Oof, I don't know what the word for that is. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. The World Health Organization released a landmark report on vision in 2019. It's estimated that 2.2 billion people in the world have vision impairment. As with many disabilities, visual impairment impacts low-income individuals, those who live in rural areas, ethnic minorities, and persons with other disabilities to a more significant degree. Much of this disparity along socioeconomic and ethnic lines are highly correlated to conditions typically associated with poverty and lack of access to quality, consistent healthcare. The spectrum of blindness and low vision is vast, and each contains unique circumstances, but there are relatable issues on the whole that are universal. Our systems are built upon an assumption that all senses will develop equally and wholly. But those in the blind and low vision community are presented with the challenges that stem from this assumption, and it affects everything from social development to employment opportunities throughout their lifetimes. In an era of heightened awareness around disabilities, equity, and empowerment, one company is driving positive change through technology in a simple and rather beautiful way. It's called Be My Eyes. Be My Eyes is an app that connects blind and low vision individuals with sighted volunteers and companies from all over the world through a live video call. The app allows these volunteers to assist blind and low vision users, providing a sense of purpose for the volunteers and a pragmatic and empowering solution to the users themselves. Companies such as Google, Microsoft, and Procter & Gamble have created unique programs to utilize Be My Eyes to assist their users and more companies are signing on rapidly. In this episode, we explore the technology, the use cases, and powerful human and corporate benefits of the app by speaking with the VP of community at Be My Eyes, Will Butler. And I'll be honest, as confident as I am behind the mic, this is the first time I've been a little nervous to interview someone because Will is not just the VP of Be My Eyes, he's a journalist and a podcast host. And he's extraordinary in both roles. We'll cover Will's journey, explore use cases for Be My Eyes, and talk about the future of inclusive initiatives and accessibility. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Will Butler. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast. I'm Jed Morey, CEO and founder of Morey Creative Studios, executive producer of the social justice podcast Newsbeat, and host of Grow for Good. As you heard in the introduction, I'm speaking with Will Butler, the VP of Community at Be My Eyes an app that connects sighted volunteers with blind and low vision users. Will, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me, Ted. I'm really, really happy to be here. I want to start by digging into your personal history a little bit because you have a great backstory personally, but I also want to start with Be My Eyes as a company to set the stage for the broader discussion. So first, can you just describe uh, how the app came about what it does, and perhaps offer a few use cases to demonstrate how it works for our listeners. Yeah, totally. Be My Eyes was the brainchild of a Danish guy who has a degenerative eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa. So he'd been gradually losing his vision over the course of many years. And once he got to a point where he really did need help doing things like reading a label on a can or something like that, it also kind of coincided with the with the advent of FaceTime on the iPhone. And video chat was just becoming a much more prevalent way of communicating. He realized he could call friends and family members to video chat them and use his camera so that they could be his eyes and basically read to him or describe whatever it is he needed described. The thing is that gets old really quickly. Uh, people stop picking up the phone or... They pick up the phone, but you feel the sense like you're becoming a burden again. And no one who's blind or has low vision wants to feel like a burden. They want to do things on their own. And yet the world is not designed very accessibly. So we do need help from other humans sometimes, much as we may not like that idea. So Hans started thinking about like, God, every time I step out the door, there's all these people who want to help me in public, people trying to help me cross the street, people asking me if I need directions, but it's never when I need help. What if I could leverage these people's desire to help and be good when I actually needed it? 
And that was the idea behind Be My Eyes. So what we created was an app that basically, sort of like a rideshare app, pings a whole bunch of different volunteers all at the same time when a blind or visually impaired person is calling for support. The first person to answer gets connected via video to the blind person and can look through their camera, be their eyes, help them with whatever barrier they're confronting and get them on throughout their day. Sometimes that whole process end to end only takes about 30 seconds and people could be talking to each other from one continent to another. How do you navigate language? Yeah, so the algorithm that Be My Eyes developed revolves around a few key factors. So one, it connects you based on the fact that you've registered for the app with the same language. Two, it makes sure that you're in a daytime time zone. So if someone calls from America at two in the morning, it will connect you likely to someone in Europe who speaks English. There's a couple other factors, but that's about it. And you know, using that algorithm, we cycle through um, millions of volunteers who have signed up to be available and they're all serving hundreds of thousands of visually impaired folks in almost 200 languages at this point. Yeah, we'll get to the size and scope of what you've built, which is, uh, I think, going to be surprising for people who've heard about it for the first time. But in, in terms of a use case, just so people can sort of wrap their minds around what these interactions are like, can you give me some of your favorite examples? Uh, you have great testimonials on your website, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but, but some examples that, that you love that really demonstrate the power of the app. There's so many good ones. You know, a lot of them are very simple. Quick calls. Like, hi, just wanted to know what the expiration date is on this milk. Oh, it's June 21st. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. That's, that's very common. Also common is troubleshooting inaccessible technology. Hey, uh, got this new oven. You know, my wife is so excited about this new oven. Too bad it's a touchscreen and I can't use it. So wife's gone for the day and the guy has to put the pizza in the oven. Can you help me set the oven? Yeah, sure. No problem. Tells you where to put your finger, which buttons to push and gets the oven set. Gets you fed lunch. <laughs> Those are very common. There's also uncommon use cases like we've heard uh, over and over this one great story about a woman. Using Be My, a Be My Eyes volunteer to help her spot check her wedding dress for stains before she walks down the aisle to make sure that it's all looking good. Oh, I love it. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite is um, a blind gentleman was hearing a strange noise in his backyard. And he, he called a Be My Eyes volunteer and pointed the phone out the window and said, what's going on in the backyard? I'm hearing this noise and I'm worried. And the volunteer said, I don't see anything strange. All I see is a, your dog back there. And the guy said, I don't have a dog. <laughs> and the volunteer said, well, there's definitely a dog back there. And he said, well, does he look friendly? <laughs> and the volunteer said, yeah, yeah. He's just sitting there scratching himself. He's wearing a collar. He doesn't look feral. Okay. So with the volunteer on his phone, the guy opens his door, cautiously approaches the dog. The dog is friendly. The volunteer is able to help the gentleman read the tag on the dog collar. And actually, the blind gentleman is able to return the dog to its rightful owner, which is something that would not be accessible whatsoever without, without a human backing you up, right? And that's the end of the interview. Everybody sign up for the app now. This is the greatest thing <laughs> in the world. Once you get pets involved and you save an animal, that's the greatest thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's my favorite one by far. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. There's other really great ones though. I could just I could just go for the whole hour. Just just we'd all be in tears by the <laughs> <laughs> Um Well, you know, one of the things I first struggled with uh when you and I first met, and you were so wonderful and compassionate about this, one of the areas I struggled was uh about language. Mm. Uh, and what I mean that is that as a sighted person speaking with a blind or low vision person, I suddenly became conscious. Right. Of how many references to sight I use in daily conversations. Right. There's so much we take for granted in our interpersonal relationships, let alone how we interact with the world when it comes to sight. Can you describe your journey to blindness? Because you actually grew up with sight and lost it a little bit later in, in life, correct? Yeah, totally. And I, and I can relate. I mean, I totally understand that walking on eggshells thing that uh, you know, blind people are so used to sighted folks doing that. We almost don't notice anymore because the truth of the matter is blindness is 
not so rare, but rare enough that many people have never met a blind person or someone who identifies as blind. And so they don't, they're good. People are generally good. That's proven by the number of volunteers we have. And they don't want to mess up. They don't want to offend somebody. They don't want friction. So they are really nervous about saying the right or wrong thing. For future reference, I think like the best thing to do is just ask like, hey, like, how do you refer to your vision? Or like, what, what's your identifier? Or what, what should I, how should I refer to blindness? You know, and they will be like, oh, I don't care at all. Or they'll say like, oh, I say visually impaired, whatever it might be. But myself, I, yeah, I grew up sighted, not great sight. Vision is the spectrum, right? There's low vision, moderate visual impairment, severe visual impairment. There's legal blindness in the UK. Sometimes they call it registered blind. Then there's total blindness. There's color blindness. You know, it's the XYZ axis. There's acuity, there's field of vision. It's so it's super complicated. So the language is difficult. I grew up sitting in the front row of the math classroom because I was couldn't see the board from the back. But, you know, got a driver's license, uh, did all the things, relatively speaking, that sighted kids do, did struggle with some eye problems, had some eye problems, had some eye surgeries. You know, it was challenging, traumatic even. Um, and to the point to where when I was in college and I got hit with kind of the worst of my retinal ish issues, retinal detachments, emergency surgeries, and then kind of came out of it with a lot of vision saved. The doctors saved a lot of my vision, but it was greatly reduced. It was blurry. It was different. I had to adjust in big ways. And no one told me, hey, uh, you're blind now. Get a white cane and a dog and start wearing Ray-Bans and you know, like <laughs> nobody, nobody made that pronouncement and I could still see some. So I still felt like a very visual person. And that happens to many, many people for a variety of reasons. And it ends up leading to many months, if not years and years of suffering because people don't get the tools they need quickly enough. They don't adapt with the speed that they could be adapting and they live in a, a lifestyle that many in the blind community call a closeted lifestyle where you're trying to pass as someone who can see as well as everyone else. It's painful. Mm. And, uh, and it can take years off your life, I think. Uh, literally. I mean, you can get hurt. Um, well, part of your backstory, which is one of the first areas that you and I connected personally, is that you are, by training, a journalist. That is where you identify professionally, first and foremost. Yeah. I imagine that might have been particularly painful because, you know, this is words on paper and, and so much of the research that we do and the social cues that you get from speaking to people when you're interviewing them, all those things, you must have had to relearn them or be constantly relearning them along the way. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I, I hadn't thought about it until you were just it had been a while since I had thought about it, but I remember when I got into reporting on hard news, like, at first I was like a music critic and kind of more of the cultural stuff. But when I got into actually doing investigative reporting, I was so mortified at the idea. I still wasn't, I was a very new blind person. I was like only a year or two into using a white cane. So I, I had come a long way, but I still didn't know everything about blindness. I was just mortified at the idea that I would, I would be way worse at my job. Journalists thrive on like just vividly describing visual, you know, setting the scene, right? You bet. And I was just like, how on earth am I ever going to be able to do that? Um, it gave me a lot of anxiety. The truth of the matter is though, like you can set a scene by asking seven people who were there to describe it for you and synthesizing their descriptions. I mean, there's all these creative ways you can do stuff. And the other thing I found was that when I was going to meet with a source or when I was going to meet with an interview subject, maybe someone very intimidating, very rich, wealthy, very uh, scary, powerful, whatever, walking in there with a white cane and my own vulnerability just kind of very open and honest, 
totally disarm them. And it ended up being a strength that I could never have even predicted. That's interesting. I think that's a good metaphor for how I've approached blindness in general. I think the best opportunities, including the opportunity to work at Be My Eyes, have come my way because I've been very open and very uh, straightforward with my blindness. And I spent a few years in purgatory. It took about three or four years until I kind of came around and said, yeah, I'm blind. You know, I might not, I might see a little bit, but I'm, I'm a blind guy pretty much. And then everything started to click into place. What is it about Be My Eyes that, that compelled you to join them? Because if I'm not mistaken, you were, I think you were employee number one in the U.S. for them. Is that right? Yeah. What drew you to them? I was running communications at the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco, which is an old nonprofit organization, but it's fairly forward thinking in terms of technology and um, its facilities and all that. We, we did a little bit of technology investing back in um, around 2015, 16. And this is, a, this is the first time this really had ever happened where a, a nonprofit organization was investing in mission-driven, for-profit technology startups that had mission alignment. And I, I think that's a really interesting thing for your listeners to think about, right? Because people, you know, nonprofits, despite the not being for-profit, have total ability to invest their funds however they want to further their mission, right? So that, so, you know, they all have investment portfolios. These guys from Denmark showed up on our doorstep saying, we have this great technology, but we're a little intimidated by the blind community because our founder's blind, but the, the operational guys aren't, and we're just trying to learn. So I was kind of an advisor to them for a handful of years, three, four years. And then when it was finally time for me to move on from Lighthouse, I didn't really expect to move to be my eyes, but they said, listen, we're, we've got this really cool new business model and we think it's going to float and we need to expand in the U.S. and we need someone who's savvy about the blind community to sort of lead the marketing efforts there and not just marketing, but to understand the users and, and really understand how we can get engagement uh, to be meaningful. And so it's just like dream job. So um, I, I haven't looked back. Yeah, and thinking about Be My Eyes as, as a company, one of the things that struck me uh, when we first learned about it was how simple it is. So I know from working with your team that the technology itself is anything but, but the premise is so elegant in its simplicity that it's beautiful. But it also occurred to us pretty quickly when we started talking to you and your team that it's one of those things that seems to bring as much joy and value to the volunteer as it does to the user. Is that, do you find that to be true in your experience? Oh yeah, probably more. (laughs) Probably more joy to the volunteer than to the user. The user gets satisfaction, right? The user gets a problem solved, right? The user gets relief. What the volunteer gets, I don't know what the word for that is. I don't, uh, they probably have it in German. <laughs> like, probably. You know, it's probably an 18 letter German word. Um, joy, like, you know, altruism, adrenaline, because you have to answer calls quickly. Yeah. You have to be on your toes. Our first, uh, the first team member on at Mori that signed up for it, actually, this is Brian Cagle who works on our team. Uh, spoke about that adrenaline because he was on another call for us when his first call came through. And he just, he's like, I panicked. I was scared. I was mad. I had all this adrenaline pumping because I couldn't pick up the call. And then boom, they must've gone to another volunteer. (laughs) And I was like, I I was so frustrated by it. He's like, because it was so like thrilling. You get that call and, and there's something to it that just like, wait, just lights you up. Like I'm about to help somebody and I didn't have to move. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Sometimes our users are a little hesitant to call a stranger for help, but we tell them like, you know, picture this. Every time you press that blue button, 20 people in the world get this rush of adrenaline and they're all scrambling to be the one who gets to help you. That's power. Like you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be nervous at all to make that call. (laughs) So before we get into the the business side of things and the use case, yeah. uh, I want to stay with one thing 
about the user that you just mentioned. And it's this idea of empowerment, because you walked us through several stages when we first got to know you about why it's not just practical and pragmatic, that there wasn't some sort of satisfaction that comes with it. There's also something empowering that comes with with using the technology and relying on a stranger to accomplish something. But that's not immediately evident when you think about that. If anything, you might assume the opposite is true, that this is somehow ceding some personal authority to a stranger and that in and of itself reveals a weakness. But can you explain how it's actually rather empowering for a user? Yeah. I mean, human beings have a complicated relationship with help, right? <laughs> like, it is happening all the time, right? I'm helping you do your podcast by not interrupting you. You know, you're helping me. There's help that is exchanged constantly. And yet, at least in America, independence is set as like the number one value. Independence. Don't depend on anyone. And it's like somebody in the produce aisle helped you by putting those apples in that perfect pyramid formation, but you didn't feel less than because you didn't go out and farm the apples yourself. So I'd start by just saying there's a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of paradox around when you're supposed to get help and when you're not supposed to get help. That being said, you know, blind and visually impaired people are on a very understandable and very valid journey to independence and to try to be as independent as possible. And part of that is not having to ask for help too much. We've also learned that when we ask our friends and family for help too much, it creates a weird relationship. So it's understandable that when we put an app in front of them that says, ask someone for help, they think like, hmm, the automatic thing goes off in their brain of like, oh, if I ask for help, I'm less independent. But it's the opposite with Be My Eyes because it's unlike any other tool that exists. You're never asking the same person for help more than once. They don't know who you are. So there's truly no strings attached. It's much more like plucking an apple off of the produce shelf than it is like asking your partner to tie your shoe, right? <laughs> That's like the extreme in the spectrum of getting help, right? And so we try to, every time we're working with a user, when we're crafting the user experience, we try to remind people that this isn't help with no strings attached. And I think that's, you're outsourcing your help so that the, the relationships in your life can just be relationships where you right. hang out, have a beer, drink coffee, whatever, like relate, joke, whatever it might be. Instead of it's like, oh, your brother's like, mm, okay, I have to carefully time my visit to my brother's house because when I get there, I'm going to have to help him clean his vacuum. I'm going to have to help him mop up a spill that he didn't know was there. I'm going to have to help him do this. And I'll do it kindly and nicely. But how nice is it if the brother gets over there and the other brother says, no, 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 no. I take care of all that stuff on my own. Right. But maybe with be my eyes or something like that. Right. So it can totally change the dynamics of interpersonal relationships on a deep, deep level. I could talk to you about the app, the experiences and uh, the the. I guess the social benefits of this all day long, but this is a business show. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk some business. I love it. The premise of Grow for Good is to highlight for-profit organizations that are either organized to do good or that choose to be identified by the good that they do. So we're basically exploring the idea that you can do well by doing good and that goodness and profit aren't mutually exclusive. And I bring that up because I know from our discussions that sometimes there's an assumption that Be My Eyes is either a nonprofit or that it should be. Can you speak to that friction when you're in a marketing and sales role for Be My Eyes as a corporate solution or for maybe sponsorship in the corporate community? Because I don't know if that's a very American construct, because I think that your founders may see it differently, you know, from a Scandinavian perspective. But speak to that friction, if you can, about this entity, but also being a business. Yeah, I mean, doing good couldn't be much more a part of our DNA than it is, right? The name, I mean, the name of the company is the mission, right? It, it's inextricable. Mm -hmm. And as we tried to, as we frankly scratched our heads for three years or so, 
to develop a business model. We uh, resisted a lot of low-hanging fruit under the premise of we want to do good for everyone. Running advertisements in front of blind people who need help or in front of volunteers who are trying to help or charging people a subscription for access to sight, which 99% of the population gets for free, just didn't seem good. So we did run, we have run the company. We have organized the company around the premise of doing good, which is why many assume we're a nonprofit. But we also want to make this a sustainable business. We, we were a nonprofit, actually, very briefly. And we decided we don't want to spend the rest of our lives or careers in this company with our, our handout. Personally, I, I can... We'd have to, you know, talk to our co-founders about why they personally made that gut decision. It was a really gut decision. Mm -hmm. Personally, the blind community has a long history of surviving off of charity. And that's why many of the organizations in the country struggle um, because they rely on the whims of donors. And we we wanted to be long-term sustainable. And we knew it would be harder to create a business model, but we knew that if we did, we would last longer. The, the gut feeling that, that gave us that instinct was that we were building, we were amassing a community, a huge community rapidly. We were suddenly, had more members than the biggest blindness organizations in the world mm. who had been around for decades trying to recruit membership. We were suddenly one of the biggest volunteer organizations in the world. And we looked at these numbers and we said, we don't know exactly what the value is here yet if it's not advertising or subscriptions, but we know there's some value there. And based on that faith, we decided to continue on as a purpose and profit-driven company. Not going for that low-hanging fruit is restraint that not a lot of companies have, but I think in the long run, and I think these examples I'm about to give will, I think, <laughs> shed a little light on it. In the long run, it sounds like it was a, a good gamble from a pure business model perspective, to the extent where you actually have kind of an upside down business issue <laughs> where your inaugural partners are partners that most companies uh, and salespeople will, uh, will seek to no avail for maybe their entire careers. Google, Microsoft, and Procter & Gamble, some of the most valuable companies on earth are your inaugural partners with a corporate application that you've customized for them. Is that in and of itself kind of an impediment? Is there a sense in the market that maybe Be My Eyes is only for the Fortune 50? <laughs> I think uh, if there is, we definitely uh, have to dispel that rumor because uh, it's, it's for everybody. I mean, it's for your, your aunt and uncle. It, it's intended, Be My Eyes more than anything is intended to scale, right? It's always designed with scale in mind. Whether it's just one person in the middle of nowhere who wants to feel helpful, or whether it's the biggest company on earth who wants to support their products and services, we will put the tools in your hands to let you support the blind community. You know, I think one of the things that we're doing more of this year is onboarding those mid-sized organizations, talking about, oh gosh, during COVID, we actually created a, a new program where any organization that serves the blind as part of their mission can hop on the BMI's platform for free, right? Mm. So that they can stay connected with their community, even though their office may be closed. Um, and those are organizations of 150 employees, 20 employees, 40 employees, 70 employees. Really, you know, because we're talking about a small community here, the call volumes are not high. So Google doesn't have like 100 people answering Be My Eyes calls. They just have a small handful. But those small handful of people stay occupied, uh, pr you know, pretty much full-time answering calls. For those companies who are smaller or mid-sized, there's not only the public-facing tools, the, the tools that allow you to support customers through the app, but you can create your own private closed networks. Be My Eyes for Work, we call it. Mm. So that if you have a blind employee or a blind member of your organization, 
you can support them and create your own kind of like mini support network that's private, closed off. The distinction between the models is the public facing one is this kind of support desk model Mm -hmm. where there are actually trained professionals that know how to help navigate issues with product and or service or whatever arises. I certainly get that, I think, for Microsoft and Google. But how does a Procter & Gamble utilize that to assist that community? What does that look like? It's really cool, actually, because what we're doing with Procter & Gamble is nothing that anyone's done before. And a lot of our users were kind of perplexed at first when they started seeing brands like Herbal Essences or you know, shampoo brands and other sort of like household type brands appearing on the, on the app. And there's one thing to have an expert about shampoo, you know, read you the label of a bottle, help you figure out which is the right shampoo for me. Questions you may never have asked anyone before because you were too ashamed or just never thought to ask. But for a blind person are very important to feel confident that they're picking the right product. But it goes beyond that. It's more than just product. It's about asking someone who is a specialized, you know, person that thinks about hair care all day long to give you their take on how is my hair, to actually have a conversation about hair, something that you wouldn't necessarily do with a a volunteer, something that a volunteer might be, that adrenaline pumping volunteer might be a little nervous on. And then the next thing we're doing with them is we're working to create these sort of valuable experiences for blind users around a lot of their household brands. Uh, I can't share too much this week, but it's uh, how does a blind person effectively clean the floor? Hmm. I don't actually know that because I've only been blind for 10 years and I haven't had enough training to know what the best way is to clean the floor. I can guess at it, but Pretty soon. I'm sighted, and I'll tell you right now, I don't know how to clean a floor. <laughs> exactly. And, <laughs> no idea. And, and that's the thing is like, so, so can you imagine if you lost some vision and then your confidence level would really go through the floor, right? Like, <laughs> but starting very soon, you're going to be able to call even more Procter & Gamble brands and ask those types of questions. And not only will they help you with their product, but they're going to give you some pretty insightful tips that only a blind person would know. So we're actually creating a knowledge center and a specialized help service that is really, really unique. Procter & Gamble has a really, really incredible accessibility, company-wide accessibility leader who's blind. And uh, she's fought for these, uh, these sorts of efforts. And it's, it's, it's yielded a lot of really creative and innovative programs. Well, we're going to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to examine the other half of the Be My Eyes universe. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. You're listening to the Grow for Good podcast with Jed Mori of Mori Creative Studios. And of course, I'm speaking with Will Butler, the VP of Community for Be My Eyes. So, Will, we're going to move to the other side of the Be My Eyes equation and talk about the community that you've helped develop and grow. And when we think about blindness, I think there's an image that comes to mind among sighted people, perhaps perpetuated by what we see and know through media and entertainment. There's this idea that blindness is a monolith. Can you talk about blindness and low vision as a spectrum and illuminate some of the findings in the World Health Report as it relates to socioeconomic status and perhaps ethnic issues? Yeah, totally. It's super interesting, right? Because no one in the blind community really knows how many blind people there are in the world because the, the term blind is too vague. There are probably somewhere between 30 and 50 million people in the world who have no vision whatsoever. That's still a pretty big number, right? There are Close to 300 million people in the world who have what the World Health Organization would call a moderate or severe visual impairment. That means you're walking through a fog. You might have pinpoint vision where you have a very low field of vision, but you can see through like a tunnel vision. 
or it may just be that everything is blurry all the time. Or maybe you can only see up close. Or actually, maybe you can only see the upper half of your visual field and not the lower half. That's maybe somewhere around 300 million people. Then there's all these hundreds of millions of other people who encounter vision impairments throughout their life. A billion of these people are people, many of whom are in developing countries, who have cataracts and just haven't had the opportunity to have a cataract operation to make them see. Or they simply have never been given a pair of glasses. Or maybe they're using a pair of glasses that were given to them by some NGO that aren't the correct prescription for them. So they kind of work, but not really. There's another 1.2 billion people in the world, many of whom are in developed countries, who encounter some of the most common medical conditions in the world that create vision problems. Diabetes results often in diabetic retinopathy, which can give you some, some degree of vision impairment. Glaucoma, we've all heard about that one. Macular degeneration, often age-related. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people who experience these age-related or health sort of like coinciding vision impairments. Something like close to 10% of males are colorblind. I think that's in the United States. There are folks who have neurological visual impairments who actually can't see despite their eyes working perfectly because of their brain. There are people with print disabilities such as dyslexia to where, yeah, their eyes work fine, but when they look at a page, they struggle to read it. Is that a visual impairment? I mean, these are all the types of people who use the Be My Eyes app. So we kind of feel like, who are we to say if you are someone who needs visual support? And that's why when the World Health Organization released that report back in October, I think, of 2019, that said 2.2 billion, it was a number that a lot of people, even in the blindness industry, didn't even trust. Mm. Because they were like, that seems incredibly high. That's 28% of the world's population. Totally resonated with me. As someone who has lived on that spectrum my whole life and very quietly suffered through, you know, not being able to see the board in classrooms. I just, it resonated with me. It was like, yeah, of course, 28% of the population is struggling to see at some point in their life. That makes sense. But it's interesting sense. to think that the ubiquity of mobile devices and smartphones has actually given, you can actually stand in for what otherwise might have helped if somebody had access to healthcare, let's say in a developed nation. Oh. It's not uncommon for people in the developing nation to have a smartphone, totally. but not have access to healthcare to take care of cataracts or to uh, even get a prescription, as you say. It's kind of mind boggling. Yeah. The fact that an Android phone could be way cheaper than a pair of glasses, kind of mind blowing. Are you making fun of Androids right now? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm still an Android user and I get a no, lot I'm of No, I'm making fun of Apple for being so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think about bridging the gap between the physical world and then the digital world, especially at this time, because you highlighted something before related to COVID and how many people were, you know, suddenly stuck in a, a different environment for work. That environment, of course, being home and not being able to access the things that they normally might do in an office environment where things are set up for them, visit a trade show, just a lot of the normalcy around day-to-day -day business kind of went out the window. It helped people see things a little bit differently and get out of their own comfort zones. When we think about like the ADA, which was passed in 1990, it was kind of a watershed moment in the U.S. as it relates to persons with disabilities. And it was, it was this acknowledgement of the challenges that people face when they're navigating the physical world. And now it's led to, uh, to some very tangible changes, even though it took a long time. But, you know, building codes did change and technology did change. And we did provide greater access. And we began to construct and to architect things with persons with disabilities in mind. But today there's a different wave of understanding with respect to the digital world. Can you tell us about web accessibility and inclusion and maybe identify where we are in that journey as a nation and as a world? Yeah, we're on the brink of revolution. <laughs> it's, uh, it feels like that. It, 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 we really are. And Pretty soon, you're not going to be able to get away with not having an accessible product on the internet. We're not quite there yet, but we're pretty darn close. So yeah, I was just talking about this with my cousin who runs e-commerce for a, a great company with a social mission. Just like on your show, you know, they're 
purpose and profit driven, they get served with a lawsuit because their website is inaccessible. And now he's scrambling to fix it and really to show that they're doing it in a meaningful way so that not only will they, you know, not lose the lawsuit, but they'll really make it, you know, continue to live up their mission. I was just telling him like, you know, our buildings, the things the ADA applies to are built by construction companies and civil engineers and architects and all these things have processes and codes. The internet was built by a bunch of random people, right? The, <laughs> it, all the engineers are freelance, right? All the, all the construction companies are, are, you know, like day labor or they're just whoever thought to do it. And so as a result, it's been much more difficult to regulate the accessibility of the internet. Now, we have standards now. We have global standards, the web content accessibility guidelines, all of these things. The Section 508 for the federal government, which makes sure that anybody who serves the federal government meets compliance. And that's huge. Uh, those have been around for almost 20 years now. And anyone who is trying to do business with a government entity knows that they have to follow those guidelines. We are not quite there yet because at least in America, the Justice Department has not yet issued guidelines or promised to enforce standards at the federal level. What you see happening at this point is on the, the district courts are handing down rulings that are nearly always favorable to web accessibility. And in fact, the Supreme Court just rejected a, a, an appeal from Domino's to reconsider a ruling against them to make their site accessible saying, you know, don't bring us this garbage. You need to make your, you know, this goes back down to the district court. You need to make your site accessible. So accessibility is winning in the court system, which is why you're getting these type of drive-by lawsuits like my, my cousins thousands of times a year. Thousands of these lawsuits are being served. But you're in the conversation of accessibility, even though you do not, even though Be My Eyes doesn't necessarily speak to accessibility as in terms of architecture, when, no. you know, what, what we come to think of as of accessibility when we're talking about the web. Yeah. But the way I've seen Be My Eyes is that it's a very logical extension to bridge the gap between digital inclusion and accessibility and what's happening in the real world. And you have sort of this very interesting place in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, to be brutally honest, we survive as a company off of the fact that 99% of the world is inaccessible to blind people, is designed by sighted people, and is therefore inaccessible. We'd love to live in a world where we don't have to exist, right? But we know that's not going to happen anytime soon. Nonetheless, we're working towards getting these companies who work with us the insight into how blind people are using or are struggling with their product. So that a company like Google or Microsoft who works with us to help their customers is simultaneously able to anticipate problems, fix bugs, remediate bad accessibility experiences, increase usability, and give people an overall better experience before even coming close to the idea of having a lawsuit served, right? So that's sort of what we offer to companies who are on their accessibility journeys. Some are early on their journeys. Some are much later on their journeys, like Google and Microsoft. You know, any way along the way, we can kind of crowdsource that usability testing for you. You can see your product in the wild and you can get some really deep insight. So I think that's where we fit in. If you don't mind, can you plug your personal podcasts? Because oh, yeah. you cover a lot of these accessibility issues and standards. Uh, you have a wonderful co-host on 13 Letters, which is the one that I'm listening to right now. But you cover a lot of these standards, and it's amazing to me, actually, because you said it before, we were kind of at the beginning of this tidal wave yeah. in this movement, but then you dig into companies like Apple, and you realize that this has actually kind of been core to who they are. So it's been going on for a while, but it's just cresting, and there's an awareness now. Yeah, I mean, mainstream accessibility, which is what the, the era we're in now, we're, we're moving toward now was basically born with the blue iMac, right? It, it was the same guy who product managed the Bondi blue iMac, who also got the first, you know, blind accessible Apple computer out the door. So therefore, he was sort of like the first guest on our, on our podcast, 13 Letters, which is 
just accessibility, there's 13 letters in the name. It's kind of a joke about how inaccessible the word accessibility is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we interview people like the, the, that guy who was at Apple at the time. He's now the head of accessibility at Facebook, doing amazing things over there. You know, people who think about accessibility at Airbnb, Procter & Gamble, obviously. Lawyers, you know, we've talked to the attorneys who have put together the negotiations with companies to keep them away from lawsuits. An amazing attorney named Lainey Feingold, who literally wrote the book on structured negotiation with companies for accessibility. She's the reason ATMs are accessible. She's the reason blind people can access the Major League Baseball's website, digital products. And she's done some amazing things, you know, 70, 80 of these amazing projects over the years. She has only sued a company once. So uh, there are alternatives to lawsuits. Uh, we interview those people. There's just a, a really a wealth of really brilliant people out there in the accessibility world. And I didn't really feel like anyone was bringing these voices out. And so BMAS just kind of took it upon ourselves to say, well, we're in this community. We're not necessarily doing the actual digital accessibility coding. Um, maybe we can help lead conversation um, and give people a venue to get to know these voices. Uh, so we're, we're, we've been really pleased to do that. And I co-host it with the lead accessibility engineer from Salesforce, uh, who's amazing, uh, Cordelia McGee-Tub. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, we're recording this during a time of major uh, social upheaval, and I tend to look for corollaries and relations in things. And I feel like accessibility is having a moment now at a really good time when people are beginning to open their minds up to otherness and thinking a little bit differently. We're having uncomfortable but very necessary conversations right now about race. And we've always said that language is important because it allows us to kind of create common definitions and level the playing field of discussion. If we're not all using the same language with the same understanding, it's very hard to have productive discussions. So in your community, in the blindness community, what are some of the stereotypes that are perpetuated about blindness? And maybe you can help disabuse us of some of the most common ones that you face and maybe offer helpful language to those interested in understanding blindness a bit differently. Yeah, there's a lot there. Blind people really just want to be integrated into mainstream society. Most blind people don't know other blind people. Most blind people didn't grow up with blind parents. We don't speak a different language. We don't have like an ASL equivalent. Braille is not another language. It's just English and code. So we want to be a part of, we want to be a part of it. That's our main motivation. And I think where we fit into the diversity conversation is that people are often scared to talk with us about the things that are core to who we are, and they tiptoe around it. That makes a lot of sense, but I think that's the beauty of what we're doing at Be My Eyes is we're giving all of these volunteers an opportunity to meet a blind person, to have a meaningful interaction, to start to see their world and understand their story. Because I think at the end of the day, the reason we have divides in you know, race and culture is because of a lack of familiarity with each other. Many of us just haven't been familiar with the other person's story. I do believe people are good at their core. And I believe that when we start connecting people through shared stories, we're going to be successful. Blindness cuts across every single demographic, rich, poor, every race, every country, it's everywhere. And there are several hundred reasons why people become blind. And much as I've studied it, I'm not you know, qualified to speak on you know, the current racial struggle that's happening now, but there's no doubt in my mind that the goals of understanding what makes us different from each other, um, whether you're blind or black or white or sighted, I don't know. I think that those things, it's a similar mindset. There's a different history there. And there's a more urgent need, I think, to roll back the 401 years of damage we've done to the black community. But I, I'm like passionate about making sure that the blind community is allied in that struggle and continuing to take action in that every day uh, in whatever way we can. So, Anyone that wants to sign up to be a volunteer can access the app uh, in the app store of whatever device they use. But what's the first step a company can take if they're intrigued by the idea of maybe a workplace solution or having a 
a help desk or if they wanted to sponsor some sort of corporate volunteerism, how would they get in touch with Be My Eyes and, and talk to you about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can go to BeMyEyes.com and click for business, but also we're always reachable just by email solutions at BeMyEyes.com. It's how you reach our team. I'm available at will at BeMyEyes.com. You know, we, we respond to every email. We read every email. So, uh, you know, we'd be happy to share with anyone kind of how the, how the public-facing customer support experience happens, how you can better support visually impaired employees. You might even have employees who work for you who are visually impaired and you might not know it. We can help you with that. Or volunteering opportunities for your staff who want to engage on a deeper level with something meaningful to them that they can do remotely from home. Whatever companies are interested in, we're, we're, we have a very flexible suite of business solutions that we can offer. So we'd be, we'd be really thrilled to hear from any of your listeners. Definitely. And on a personal level, how can people find your podcasts? The podcasts are the Be My Eyes podcast, where we interview blind folks. Really great kind of just fun podcast. Uh, that's just the Be My Eyes podcast. And uh, 13 letters, one, three letters, all searchable on uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or just by typing bemyeyes.com slash podcasts. Will, I appreciate you, and, and I uh, thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely. And as always, I appreciate everybody for tuning in. If you have any suggestions for a guest on the show, feel free to email us at growforgood at moreycreative.com. If you like the show, rate us, review us, wherever you download podcasts. Will Butler, you're the best. Thanks for the time. Thanks, guys. It's always good to talk to you too, Jed. I appreciate it. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.